Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we begin to read through the tale, The Seven Ravens, and to explore the challenges of reconciling the different sides of our nature. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. Feeling for the infinite, however, can be attained only if we are bounded to the utmost. The greatest limitation for a person is the self. It is manifested in the experience, I am only that. In knowing ourselves to be unique in our personal combination, that is, ultimately limited, we possess also the capacity for becoming conscious of the infinite, but only then. We are amphibious creatures, declares the religious writer Evelyn Underhill. Our life, she goes on, moves upon two levels at once, the natural and the spiritual. This is a statement, I believe, with which Jung, in its essentials, would be in agreement, though with one clarification. Neither level, he would assert, can function properly without the other. On the one hand, we are creatures of the earth, the natural level. This is the level of the personal, the practical, the human. Here we find the raw material of our lives, those details, circumstances, and relationships that make our lives real and unique. On the other hand, there is that in us which strives beyond the earthy and aspires for more than the mundane. We seek the transcendent, the spiritual level. It's from this level that we experience aliveness and meaning. When this is lacking, says Jung, everything becomes banal. We lose the connection to the infinite. However, as we heard in the opening quote, the feeling for the infinite can be attained only if we are bounded to the utmost. Both of these qualities, the earthy and the spiritual, are needed if we are to live psychologically whole human lives. But it is a difficult task to bring them into a state of harmony with each other. 
Most of the time, we are one-sided, living primarily out of one of these aspects of our being at the expense of the other. Now, over the next two episodes, I'm going to take an in-depth look at a fairy tale called The Seven Ravens that I believe gives symbolic expression to the problem of reconciling these two sides of our nature. I'll work through the first half of the tale in what follows here and finish up with the second half next time. So let me jump right in here with the first section of The Seven Ravens. A man had seven sons, but however much he wished for a daughter, he did not have one yet. Finally, his wife gave him hope for another child, and when it came into the world, it was indeed a girl. Great was their joy, but the child was sickly and small, and because of her weakness, she was to be given an emergency baptism. The father sent one of the boys to run quickly to the well and get some water for the baptism. The other six ran along with him, because each one of them wanted to be the first one to dip out the water, the jug fell into the well. There they stood, not knowing what to do, and not one of them dared to go home. When they did not return, the father grew impatient and said, They have forgotten what they went after because they were playing those godless boys. Fearing that the girl would die without being baptized, he cried out in anger, I wish that those boys would all turn into ravens. He had hardly spoken these words when he heard a whirring sound above his head, and looking up, he saw seven coal-black ravens flying up and away. Like many tales, this one begins with something that is missing. A man had seven sons, we're told, but however much he wished for a daughter, he did not have one yet. This opening sentence lets us know the conditions in place at the start of the story, the problem that needs to be solved. And the problem here is that there is no daughter. Lots of boys, but no girls. And right off the bat, we learn that there is an imbalance between those two energies that we talked about at the beginning of this episode, the earthy and the spiritual. Now, it's a common convention in these age-old tales to represent the spiritual energies with male figures and the earthy energies with female figures. And so we often find these two dimensions of experience referred to as the masculine and the feminine. Now, this language can be problematic to our modern sensibilities, especially if we make the mistake of understanding these terms as meaning traits that belong to men versus traits that belong to women. 
properly understood, both the so-called masculine and the so-called feminine are archetypal energies present in everyone. For our purposes, we need to recognize that the tale uses the language of traditional gender roles as an image to describe an inner psychological development, one that is relevant for everyone, regardless of their gender. But the story uses other symbols as well, as we'll see more fully in part two of this series next time, those of the sun and the moon. And so to avoid some of the difficulties that come with using the language of masculine and feminine, I'm going to speak of solar and lunar consciousness instead. One of the advantages of using this imagery is that it reduces the chances of talking about stereotypes when we really want to be focusing on archetypes. Solar consciousness, as the name suggests, is a fiery spiritual principle. It brings qualities like intensity, passion, and the energy of potential. Lunar consciousness, by contrast, cools things down. It possesses the energy of what alchemy called the coagulatio, a kind of condensing and consolidating energy. Through the lunar principle come the qualities of reflection, responsibility, and the solidity of the actual. So if we bring all this back to our story, we could say that at the beginning of the tale, there is an excess of the solar principle and a deficit of the lunar. There's a lot of energy and potential represented by the seven suns, but it lacks substance. It's yet to be manifested in something real. The story, however, begins at the point where this imbalance is starting to be felt, which is suggested by the fact that the man is wishing for a daughter. He feels the need for a different kind of energy in his life. And there's a moment in any endeavor, whether it's a creative project, a major life transition, or a simple everyday event, when a decision has to be made. What is potential must be made actual, right? Whatever big ideas we may have in mind, whatever grand plans or ambitions we may harbor in our hearts, whatever inspirations may visit us at peak moments, all these must be brought down to earth and there made subject to the patient and often humble work needed to bring them into being. The seven suns can be understood as an image of all the possibilities that call out to us at any given time. They're the many competing interests and desires that vie for our attention. And in the story, we can see how they compete with each other when they're running out to get the water for the baptism of their newborn sister. Each one of them wanted to be the first one to dip out the water, we read. But the consequence of this competitiveness 
is that they drop the jug into the well. They lose the container. In other words, the energy represented by the brothers cannot be contained. It resists any kind of limiting or restriction of its power. Ultimately, though, this resistance reflects a state that is really ineffectual and impotent because our powers and potentials can only find their fulfillment when, as Jung says, we are bounded to the utmost. Or as Evelyn Underhill puts it, the artist, the discoverer, the philosopher, the lover, the patriot, the true enthusiast for any form of life can only achieve the full reality to which their special art or passion gives access by innumerable renunciations. We must choose. And this means sacrifice. For the fact is that every choice we make means that we choose away from something else. We cannot have it all, regardless of the messages with which we are barraged by our technological and consumerist world. We're surrounded, like never before, by a myriad of sights, sounds, and delights of a world that offers infinite possibilities. But we cannot live infinite possibilities. Trying to do so can only keep us at odds with ourselves. We remain, as the Jungian analyst Edward Edinger puts it, all promises and no fulfillment. And so our true self languishes. And like the young daughter at the start of the story, it remains sickly, frail, and weak. Now, before moving on to the next part of the story, we still have to deal with the detail of the boys being turned into ravens. Now, I'll discuss the raven image in more detail in the next episode, but here just let me note that, again, it's an image of the spirit. The boys are supposed to gather water for the baptism. That is, they're supposed to bring for their sister the element connected to the Holy Spirit. But of course, they lose the jug. And the father, in his anger and impatience, curses the brothers, turning them into ravens. So instead of a spirit that infuses life in the form of a baptism, it gets cut off from that life instead and flies away. To use psychoanalytic language, we would say that the energy connected with the spirit gets dissociated. The spiritual and the earthy do not come together, but rather are driven apart. Now, there's still a bit more to say about this, but at this point, let's turn back to our tale and find out what happens next. The parents could not take back the curse. And however sad they were at the loss of their seven sons, 
They were still somewhat comforted because of their dear little daughter, who soon gained strength and became more beautiful every day. For a long time, she did not know that she had had brothers, for her parents took care not to mention them to her. However, one day she accidentally overheard some people talking about her. They said that she was beautiful enough, but that in truth she was to blame for her seven brothers' misfortune. This troubled her greatly, and she went to her father and mother and asked them if she indeed had had brothers and what had happened to them. Her parents could no longer keep the secret but said that it had been heaven's fate and that her birth had been only the innocent cause. However, this ate at the girl's conscience every day, and she came to believe that she would have to redeem her brothers. We hear a lot about adulting, these days. It's a tongue-in-cheek way of talking about learning to take up the responsibilities and mundane realities of adult life. But we could also see the sudden popularity of this word in our culture as a recognition that the transition into adulthood is not automatic, and it's not easy. We lack a reliable process by which a young person might be initiated into this stage of life. As a result, it's a transition that can evoke fear, self-doubt, and a rapid deflation from the experience of promise and potential that comes with youth. In trying to establish the security of a stable existence, we may feel we need to sacrifice much of what is wild, creative, and spontaneous about ourselves. If we don't see a way that we can bring our fiery spirit into daily existence, we may deny it to the point that it flies away like so many coal-black ravens whirring overhead and out of sight. And this is not a situation that is unique to our day. Jung wrote about this very experience in a 1934 essay titled The Development of the Personality. There he speaks of the persona that many adopt at this time of life, which he calls the professional man which of course today could equally apply to the professional woman. And he writes this. He says, Everyone who has finished his course of studies feels himself to be fully educated. In a word, he feels grown up. He must feel this. He must have this solid conviction of his own competence in order to survive the struggle for existence. Any doubt or feeling of uncertainty would hinder and cripple him, undermining the necessary faith in his own authority and unfitting him for a professional career. 
People expect him to be efficient and good at his job and not to have doubts about himself and his capabilities. The professional man is irretrievably condemned to be competent. Competence, as Jung is using it here, is a kind of compromise formation that comes at the expense of a full development of one's uniqueness. What Jung, in the same essay, calls the creative meaning and potentialities of adult existence. This is the situation represented in our story. Out of the fear for the viability of the life of his daughter, who, as we said, represents the lunar consciousness that enables things to take on a stable and concrete reality, the father curses and effectively banishes the unruly potentialities of the spirit. And this is one solution to the problem of adulting. And it can work for a time. It's a kind of fake-it-till-you-make-it strategy that can aid the passage into adulthood. But eventually, the loss will come to be felt. One may have stability, but without the creative spirit, life can become flat and empty. One day, perhaps, we look up from our desk and ask the fateful question, is this all there is? And so it is that in the story we hear that the daughter does not even know of her brothers until she overhears some people saying that she was the cause of their misfortune. Her parents try to reassure her that she was not to blame for the fate of her brothers, that her birth was not so much the cause as it was the occasion for their transformation into ravens. But this does not comfort her. Her conscience begins to gnaw at her until, as we read in the story, she came to believe that she would have to redeem her brothers. Now, all of this hardly seems fair right? I mean, surely the daughter can't be blamed for what happened. Why should she be the one to feel responsible for a situation that was created by the father's curse? It seems clear enough that any blame for the brother's plight falls fully on his shoulders, though he tries to pass the buck by calling it heaven's fate. And here we might talk about the unlived life of the parent, which Jung declares to be one of the greatest burdens that a child has to bear. And what he means is that those conflicts and problems of living that our parents were unable to resolve in their own lives, in a sense, get passed down to us and become our problems to solve. In this case, then, we could say that the father's inability to reconcile the demands of the spiritual and the earthy, the solar and the lunar, gets passed down to his daughter. 
And so the story says she is the one who must redeem her brothers. Now this is certainly a valid interpretation of the dynamics at work in our tale. But we could also look at it from a slightly different angle as well. It's not only the parents' unlived life with which we must come to terms. But as James Hollis points out, it is also our own unlived life that weighs upon our souls. And this is how he describes it. There is something in us, he says, all of us, that knows what is right for us, which path is ours and not someone else's, something that pushes us beyond our comfort zone into areas of growth, development, and presence in this world greater than we have lived up to this point. And this is what the daughter recognizes. She knows that ultimately the assignment of blame matters very little. The question for each of us does not lie so much in the past as it reaches towards the future. Whoever may bear the responsibility for how things are or how they have turned out, the fact remains that our life is always and only our task. It is our path to walk and no one else's. And yes, this means that at times it can be a burden that we have to carry. But that doesn't preclude it from also being a gift and a privilege. And in the next episode, we'll pick up the second half of our story and follow the young daughter as she takes up the task of her life to find and redeem her long lost brothers. But for now, let me just close with this thought from the great theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel. And this will be our takeaway. He writes this. No one will live my life for me. No one will think my thoughts for me or dream my dreams. In the eyes of the world, I am an average person. To my heart, I am not an average person. To my heart, I am of great moment. The challenge I face is how to actualize the great eminence of my being. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, 
you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.